the, the most important thing that I've learned is there's absolutely never any reason to panic or freak out. Uh, you just stay calm and stay focused. And, uh, you know, what you uh, perceive as something that's like devastating at the moment, if years down the road, you might realize, man, that's the best thing that could have happened. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Rich Willie. Rich, well, he speaks from experience. A veteran sideman and prolific composer, Rich has played with the likes of Maynard Ferguson, Mel Torme, and Tommy Dorsey, and has published a massive collection of arrangements, compositions, and method books. But success on the bandstand came at a price. Rich has had to endure a number of setbacks that nearly ended his career, eventually leading Rich to become a student of Donald Reinhardt's pivot system and to his commitment to provide help and hope to others. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! Welcome to this new episode of the Trumpet Group Hang, and I am joined by Mr. Rich Willie. Rich, it is a pleasure to get to hang with you today, my friend. How's life uh, treating you? Everything's good. I have zero complaints. So I only have things to be grateful for. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That is absolute truth. Um, so, Rich, uh, besides being a uh, trumpet player, a valve trombonist, uh, bass trumpet player, tuba player now, uh, also a composer and arranger and engineer and uh, so talented. Uh, and uh, also is, is a, a highly respected teacher of uh, the uh, teachings of Doc Reinhardt. Uh, and so actually uh, we had met previously, but um, you know, the, the person who kind of instigated this was was our mutual friend, Mark Mike Barkley. Mike is uh, one of the show's sponsors, and uh, he's one of your former students. So um, you can tell me all the dirt about him later. Uh, well, he, he plays well in spite of studying with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he, he holds you in the highest regards. Yeah, that's really so, fine. Uh, so anyway... Uh, you know, when we were we were having the the pre-show, just kind of talking and, and catching up with each other, uh, sort of thing. You you were you hit on on a lot of really interesting topics, and I think one of the things like I would actually kind of like to start maybe more in the middle of your career than the beginning of your career, uh, just to kind of set the stage for people who who don't know you. Um, you know, you were you were mentioning that you've gone through some some chop issues and, and some things like that and, and have had to reinvent yourself a few times. Um, you know, wh when you've gone through those processes, uh, what are some of the, the big takeaways that you've gotten from having to deal with, with issues and like, and specifically, how has it helped you become a, a better teacher? Huh? <clears throat> well, let me ponder this for a second because <laughs> uh you know some days uh some days you have all these revelations other days you realize wow man uh, i'm you know i don't know anything uh so i think what could have been the most traumatizing thing that happened to me was when i had bell's palsy and uh 
Doc had told me about Doc Reinhardt had told me about Bell's palsy in probably 1982 or 83. I can't remember when it was, but he talked about a student who had Bell's palsy. So when it came on, I was actually on a, a tour and uh, I had one more night to play and, uh, and I ended up, you know, going to the hospital. I, I couldn't even, there's no way the, the right side was gone, but uh, I knew that it was Bell's palsy. Uh, they gave me uh, a steroid, I think prednisone, and they gave me acyclovir, a, uh, uh, you know what that is. Oh man, Andy, what is it? Uh, uh, what is it you take when you have like a, I can't, I can't remember this word. No, no, anticoagulant uh, or no, no, no. Uh, Antimatter. <laughs> Anti M. I don't know. Anyway, acyclovir. It'll come to me later, probably right when we turn this thing off. And then when I came back uh, to Asheville, I went to the VA hospital. You know, Army veteran, and uh, and she uh, she affirmed that yeah, that's that's exactly what the guy should have given me, and. Uh, so fortunately, I mean, within 24 hours, I, I sought medical attention and uh, it was like January 26th or something. And uh, I had, the, I had, I was supposed to play with Natalie Cole on February 21st. And man, you talk about, uh, I, I, like I said, I could have freaked out, but uh, I figured, you know what, let's just, you know, let this play out, see what happens. And I didn't try to buzz my lips. Uh, I didn't try to play because I knew that everything was useless. Uh, but just staying calm and knowing that, you know, like what's the old saying, this too shall pass. I, I just knew that uh, getting all freaked out is, is not going to, it's not going to help anything. I mean, the same thing is going to happen whether I freak out or not. So I just, uh, I was working on a book at the time and I just focused on that. And I remember one night my wife says, I can't believe you're not freaking out about this. You know, you can't play, you know, all your life you've wanted to play, you know, trumpet, whatever. And uh, you're not freaking out. So what, what good would it do to freak out? So I think that's really the most important thing is if I have issues to just stay calm, uh, cause you know, getting all like anxiety stricken, uh, is not going to help. And, uh, it was, ah, oh, when did I, that was 2009. I know in, uh, uh, I, I turned out a book called Focal Point about a year after I turned out uh, uh, the Reinhardt Routines, which was Chris LaBarbera's suggestion, by the way. I, I try to give credit to everybody who's helped because, you know, I don't want anybody to think that I'm, I'm this genius because I'm really not. But, uh, uh, yeah, uh, in, in that book, I quoted this, uh, there's a writer, like an inspirational writer, Ogmandino, and he had this story called The 12th Angel. And uh, this one little guy, he had this mantra, which was day by day in every way I'm getting better or something like that. And uh, I just, you know, I, I used to, to make a rhyme out of it, you know, every day in every way I'm getting better and better and better. And uh, when uh, the, the whole concept of positive affirmations, it's like the self-talk. You've heard of, about the self-talk. If, if I'm practicing and struggling and kicking the garbage cans and, you know, cursing and saying, you know, I, you know, suck and all this, man, that's, that's so counterproductive. So I finally learned that it's, you know, my self-talk reinforces, you know, the positive thing. Like, you know, I am getting better, even though I'm going through this hard time, I know I'm getting better, you know, cause 
uh, there's lessons that I'm learning, you know, what, what they say, uh, uh, and, uh, you don't become an expert sailor by always sailing on smooth seas, right? Exactly. You know, you, you got to have those rough seas to become a, an expert sailor. So I think the, the most important thing that I've learned is there's absolutely never any reason to panic or freak out. Uh, you just stay calm and stay focused. And, uh, you know, what you uh, perceive as something that's like devastating at the moment, if years down the road, you might realize, man, that's the best thing that could have happened. You know, today I'm, I'm grateful that I had Bell's palsy because, uh, you know, guys who have it, if they come to me, I can help reassure, you know, don't even try to play, man. You know, until you can whistle your lips, don't even, you know, whistle, form your lips to whistle. Don't even think about putting a mouthpiece to your face because all you're going to do is train those muscles that have not uh, sufficient strength to, to come back and, and do anything yet. You're going to train them to do something that's compensating for the fact that they have no strength. So don't do anything, man. Just, you know, relax, go do something else, man. Go bowling. You know, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've had, uh, I've had to recover from a few uh, surgeries that, uh, you know, ran into some, some complications or abdominal surgeries. And that's one of the things, you know, I'd be on a, on a form or something and someone would say, Oh, I'm getting a hernia surgery. You know, how, how soon can I start playing? My doctor says this, or, you know, somebody, and I, I will chime in and say, look, I'm not a doctor, but I have experienced, you know, six abdominal surgeries over the the course of the past 10 years. Wow. Here, I can tell you my experiences are when you feel like you're ready to play. Don't don't. Yeah. <laughs> These are the things that you want to do. These are the things you want to be careful about. And it's, it's speaking from experience. And what I found is that um, like you're, I'm, I'm huge into the, the motivational space, you know, and uh, you know, I, I like one of the quotes Tony Robbins uses, which, you know, you know, life either happens to you or for you. And I like the idea of learning those lessons and saying, okay, well, here I'm at this point where I can't play. When I come back, what can I do to make my playing better? Yeah. How can I use right. this more efficiently? And sometimes it's, you know, just getting away from the horn completely. I mean, I'm not even thinking about it, but sometimes it's, it's thinking about retooling, you know, how do you want to approach things? How do you want to do things a little bit differently? Taking time to, to uh, search out the resources that you need to, to learn uh, a, a more efficient approach. So uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, we, I think we all at some point in our careers, uh, whether you're a professional player, or amateur player, or whatever you're doing, you're going to run into a point where you don't know what to do next. And that's where it's so important to to find people who have uh, have gone on before you and have made the mistakes and had the had the the negative experiences, but have learned from them and they can share with you a, a better way of, of approaching it. Right. No, absolutely. And that, that thing about whatever the doctor says, man, I would double it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, well, I, I told you I didn't want to go into it, but uh, a doctor told me to wait six weeks after a uh, an oral surgery before I started playing again. I waited six weeks to the day, and I came back gangbusters. And that's, you know, basically what caused this uh, original lip problem that I had in 1980 or 81, whenever that was. So, yeah. Uh, and trumpet, man, you cannot cram on trumpet. You know, you cannot cram for a gig. You have to spend hours every day or else you're not going to be able to play a gig that lasts hours. 
And if, if you try to like, I, I, there, there are, you know, there's exceptions. There's guys who don't practice and I hate them all. <laughs> but, you know, I practice every day. And, you know, nowadays I practice tuba, uh, bass trumpet and trumpet. And I'm also uh, learning how to play the EV, the electronic valve instrument. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, you know, I practice uh, all of those every day and uh, try to, you know, I, well, tr- simulating a gig in the, the practice room. I think that's like the the hardest thing if you're not playing a lot of gigs and you have demanding gigs coming up to me that's the hardest thing because my chops i always have to be ready you know for whatever comes up i got to be ready for it i can't like at the last minute think oh okay i can spend two days cramming no you can't do it on i can't do it on trumpet yeah well you know it's like in sports you know they talk about like being game ready you know where, where you get these guys that that are you know, if you think about being a, a trumpet player, like being an athlete, and some people say it's a it's a valid analogy. Some people it really is. It, it isn't. But regardless, uh, to perform at a high level, you, you have to have a level of practice in. And there's a difference between practice, practice, and game, like really game level practice. And you know, there have been so many top level players, both in you know basketball, football, whatever. Uh, you know, it's like they're going through rehab. And they're they're doing the basic training, or they're coming out of retirement, and they're still in great shape physically. But they, you know, they say they're not game ready because there's there's something that's a little bit different than you know when you're when you're on stage when you have to be on. Uh, so you know, I I'm I'm with you 100. Yeah, you know, but I have to admit I am one of those people who who doesn't practice. Uh, unfortunately, I I sound like I haven't practiced. <laughs> Well, you know, I just reminded myself. I uh, I opened up the the bottled water, and I immediately threw the cap in the trash. To me, that that's because I made a commitment. I'm going to drink this whole bottle of water, and uh, you know, playing the trumpet is the same thing, man. You have to make a commitment. You can't say, ah, you know, you really can't. If if you don't make a commitment to it, it'll eat you alive. It, it, that's been my experience anyway. Yeah. Again, and, and- there's all these exceptions who, uh, you know. <laughs> I don't it, hate them, but yeah, let's just yeah. say I envy them. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. But you know, it's an interesting uh, thing too. I mean, it's it's go, you know, having that that go for it mentality. You know, you I don't feel like you can be uh, exceptionally successful in whatever your definition of success is uh, by playing it safe. You know, and uh, especially in the world of of uh trumpet players i mean it, it, maybe you can play a little safe if you're if you're playing you know the second or third book somewhere but if you're going to be a principal player in an orchestra you're going to be a lead trumpet player uh in in a, a commercial setting uh you can't be tentative i mean you, you've got to you've got to be willing to just go out there and, and sometimes that means being willing to crash and burn um but uh i, I think and, and i think that the greatest players they have that sort of uh, reckless abandon to them where you, you know that they're, they're constantly pushing themselves to the limits of their abilities. Um, and that's how they grow. And that's, that's how they create this, this wonderful, magical uh, experience for us as a listener. So uh, yeah, don't, don't be afraid to make mistakes is I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, man, you gotta be willing to suck, especially as a, an improvising jazz musician. You know, all, all my students who come to me wanting to learn how to improvise, I say, hey, man, the first thing you have to do is you got to know that you are going to suck and you can't be afraid of it. Uh, but, you know, kind of harking back to what you were just talking about, I've read about uh, 
Louis Armstrong, you know, like in his early days, he would be playing in this place and, you know, there'd be six people there and uh, it'd be raining outside and, and they'd have pans catching the water dripping all over the place. And, you know, it's just the most dismal place on earth. And he would be going for it, you know, 100%, man. He wouldn't leave anything on the field. And, uh, you know, <laughs> if, if, if you're always playing it safe on a gig, I don't know, man. I think you might uh, be playing it safe in life and you may not get everything out of it that you're going to, you know, that you possibly could get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very true. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, as I want to transition into the, to some of the, the Reinhardt stuff, uh, I, I think it's really interesting. And, and to me, uh, Doc's teachings resonated with me because I have uh, that scientific kind of mind, you know, uh, that I like to analyze things, I like to break things down, I like to try and figure out why they work, how they work. And, you know, sometimes that's to my dis my dismay because I, I can I can get down some rabbit holes real quick. But um, what I like, one of the things I like about about the Reinhardt approach is that it says that there are some fundamental ways that things work, and those are consistent uh, in just in general. Uh, and then, but then there are these specific subcategories of those things uh, that allow you to uh, predict with a certain level of accuracy, the most probable outcome and the most probable, the most probable advantages and disadvantages of any given situation. Uh, so it, it allows for the freedom of individual and individual uh, physiology and, and psychology. So, uh, and I think that from a, a, a problem solving perspective, I think that it is by far the most thorough method of approaching brass playing that there is uh, to date. I'm not saying that, that somebody can't come up with something a little more refined, but you know, the, but to date, I think that it is uh, probably the most the the, the the most thorough in terms of an analytical and diagnostic approach to to playing. Um, so from, from your perspective as a student, because you studied directly with Doc. Um, so, you know, what, what was like kind of the vibe that you got from him in terms of uh, his ability to balance the analytical side of playing and the musical side of playing? Because those, the, while they're, they're necessary and related, sometimes I think people get, get too focused on on uh you know dissecting and not not enough on on making the music okay feel free to steer me back to those two points that you just made okay but, uh so when i first got to him it was june of 1978 and i think he told me he was 72 at the time i could be wrong uh i don't have his uh biography in front of me but you know he was a curmudgeon man he was a you know a cantankerous kind of a grouchy dude man and mm -hmm. he would slam his hand on the desk and say, no, <laughs> no, no, I'm not talking about that. You know, a lot of people would, they'd probably never go back. But, uh, you know, that's kind of, I needed to be shaken up because I guess uh, in 78, I was 23, 22, 23. And, uh, uh, and I was falling apart. My, my face was, you know, I'd gotten by on a certain amount of ability and, uh, and things were kind of falling apart. And he said, yeah, things that work for you when you're young uh, don't always carry over into your old age. As you get older, your reflexes slow down. So we're younger, we're stronger, we have faster reflexes, we can recover faster, et cetera, et cetera. 
And as we get older, uh, things start to crumble. And you hear all these guys like at ITG, which I'm going to next week, you hear these guys, oh man, when I was a teenager, good grief, man, I could play double high C all night and all that. And I can't even, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, okay. So doc, uh, okay. First of all, he, he categorized the types of players. There are distinct types. No two people play exactly like he used to say, I never give a lesson that I don't take a lesson. I heard him say that so many times, but, uh, and you know, since I've been working with Doug, I kind of understand, uh, the type one is people with perfectly even teeth when they had no malocclusion, their teeth are perfect. And uh, so they're either going to play upstream or downstream. And it doesn't necessarily depend on the angle of the horn. It depends on how much uh, top lip or how much bottom lip predominates into the mouthpiece. And then the type two, and, uh, you know, Doug says these are kind of like theoretical types. They almost don't exist. Type two is a guy that walks around like this. That's me. Okay. okay. But most type twos are, are types, uh, guys who have uh, the lantern jaw, as, as Reinhardt called it, kind of the bulldog jaw. Uh, they play either as a, a 3B or a 3A or a type 4 or a type 4A. You know, they play as one of these other types. So 3 is the basic downstream type. 4 is the basic upstream type. Uh, and then, you know, in 3B, you have, uh, okay, so you had pivot classification 1, which is push. Everything kind of goes up to a higher point on your teeth and gums. Uh, and he's talking about the mouthpiece and the lips as one unit. He said that a thousand times. Go to a higher point on your teeth and gums to ascend and to a lower point to descend. And then the pivot classification, too, is just the opposite. Now, I did. I took a course in technical writing at North Texas, which was one of the best courses I ever had. Because, man, I never had to think so hard in any course ever. And, uh, you know, Reinhardt kind of prided himself for his technical writing. And uh, I'm sure there's technical writers out there who would give him varying uh, degrees or, you know, very, uh, varying their grading of his uh, ability to, you know, to, to, to say it so well that it, it can't be misinterpreted. Man, I think Reinhardt stuff is easy to misinterpret. And I think a lot of people do. And a lot of people also think that, you know, it's so complicated. Well, what he was trying to do was make sure that he didn't steer anybody wrong and sometimes that takes a lot of words to to you know cover your ass basically so you don't get misinterpreted well it's kind of like the guys who say well you know i don't i don't use finale i use sibelius or i use muse score because it's so much easier well if you use finale which i do there's nothing it's it's like the industry standard because you know there you can do this much stuff in finale and uh, i've never found anything that i couldn't do in finale the other ones are easier but you know, and they always compare it to finale. Well, you know what? It's like, it's like comparing a Volkswagen to a Cadillac, you know, why don't you just drive a Cadillac or, you know, stop saying my Volkswagen is kind of like a Cadillac. So, uh, a lot of guys are turned off by Reinhardt's approach. Cause they say, Oh, analysis paralysis. Well, and then they end up being the young guy who could play, you know, you know, ridiculously. And then as he got older, he started falling apart and refused to read the, you know, read the finale, uh, handbook. You know what I mean? To, yeah. to really dig in depth. So, and then we get back to the whole point of music. Man, Reinhardt, he said it a million times. Uh, when you get on the bandstand, forget about Reinhardt, man. You just think about playing the music. And he would give you stuff. Uh, he would cover everything. I mean, he did cleft, you know, transposition by cleft. He didn't want you uh, to not know how to, like, if you got a part on a gig, 
he wanted no matter what it was he wanted you to be able to play it and he gave you stuff to drill you on that uh as far as music man he was he was a brilliant musician have you ever heard i think i posted his bluebells of scotland on the trumpet herald i don't know did you hear that man i mean he was dastardly bad man badass man he was unbelievable so you know for him it was take care of all this stuff in the practice room so that when you get on the gig you can forget about it and just play kind of like charlie parker said learn everything you can and when you get on the gig forget about it and just play that's exactly what reinhardt did and he gave you stuff oh man if you did his routines you would be cursing and you know it's hard and, and and then you get on the gig and it's like oh it's easy to play, man, because <laughs> he gave you stuff that was so hard in the practice room that, uh, you know, when it's time to just simply play music, it was like, bada bing, man, this is easy. So uh, I hope I answered your question, man. So it's kind of like front loading. Yeah, you, you, you do the heavy lifting up front. And then, you know, by the time you, you get to the gig, it's like, oh, man, this is a walk in the park. Or uh, I've heard it called the medicine ball approach. I, uh, I had this guy at North Texas, uh, Dr. Bill Gardner for theory. And every Friday we had the departmentals. So, you know, a lot of the teachers taught to the test, right? And uh, Bill Gardner, man, he, he he went fast and he gave you so much that by Friday it was like, man, that was so easy. You know, nobody struggled with their departmentals with uh, Bill Gardner. And uh, anybody who studied with him, hopefully they can affirm what I'm saying, that that's the way, man. And that's what Reinhardt was. He was a medicine ball approach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that there's, there's definitely something to be said for that. And, you know, so uh, I think that, that, um, I mean, I'm one of those people that when I, when I first got turned on to the Reinhardt, Reinhardt method, I like bought a book. Yeah. You know, I, I bought the encyclopedia, the pivot system. It was, you know, I don't know, maybe late eighties, early nineties, something like that. Um, but I didn't understand it. You know, uh, I interpreted it and I didn't uh, apparently did not interpret it correctly. Uh, so like you're saying, you know, the, the importance of the clarity. Uh, but I think ultimately we can only describe things based upon our own perspectives. And, and when you when you say something, uh, when, when you classify something as being a specific thing, then uh, it, it sometimes uh, gets interpreted by other people as something slightly different. Uh, because, you know, like if you if one person says uh, like squeeze and another person says compression and another person says engagement, uh, they they may be all talking about the same action. But Somebody else might interpret that as pinch. Yeah. Right. And pinching yeah. power and compression. I know they can be misinterpreted. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, that, that's why I, I really uh, find it fascinating to talk with, with people who not only have studied the method, uh, but, you know, that the people actually had, had studied with Doc and especially those who have taken those teachings and, and maybe, you know, added some other things, other aspects and, and tried to, you know, create, um, create their own vibe for, you know, you know figuring out ways that, that it works best for them. Um, and yeah, I know, I know like the, the people that have said, okay, like Doug says, okay, well, there really is no two, you know, you're basically, you're, you're, you're a three or a four, uh, even though that is a, a technical classification, the reality is that it's, you know, it's, it, you're generally one of these two types. So, um, you know, helping to kind of clarify, uh, the teachings. So, um, like for me, uh, I, I don't want to get a, a lesson on this, uh, 
on the air. Maybe I'll, I'll talk to you about this later on. But but being someone who does fall into that category, uh, the technically being a, a two, being, you know, having a, a protruding lower jaw, uh, you know, what mm-hmm. I've found is that most teachers that I had earlier in my career had no idea how to deal with my specific physiology. You know, it was a whole lot of, well, you're having this problem, which now, as I understand the, the, the method and the, the uh, teachings and like, okay, well, what are the, what are the weak spots in the, the playing of a, of a four? Uh, and, you know, those were all the problems that I was having. And uh, instead of being able to say, okay, this is how we correct this through uh, uh, the, the studies, it was, okay, well, change your embouchure. You know, you, you should be yep. Yep. higher on, on your chops and you should be doing this and you should do that. And it, had, it were they were completely opposite of what my body wanted to do. And what, and what Doug had told me was that all the problems that I, I started to develop later in my life as a player were because my body wanted to do one thing naturally because of my, my physiology or needed right. thing, but my mind <clears throat> telling me to do something else because that's what my teachers told me to do. Right. Um, so with, with the ideas of uh, we have to kind of find the, the correct path for us, what are some of the diagnostic tools that you utilize and that you suggest people uh, you'll consider when they're dealing with with kind of you know these standard playing issues that we have okay before i do that you brought up three things that i wanted to talk about real quick uh first thing is so many teachers they teach guys to play the way they think they play uh and doc used to talk about you know these guys at universities who never turned out a bad student. And it's because they never got a bad student. I remember when I went to North Texas, John Haney was like the big deal. Well, you know what? You didn't get to study with John Haney until you were a graduate student and one of like the chosen few. So he never got a bad student. And I, I know that happens in many schools and I'm not gonna badmouth anybody, but uh, that's just the fact. Uh, so I said, you said, there were three things you said. Uh, one was to teach the way they want to teach. Uh, well, you know, another one was uh, Doc told me that he wanted to include a type five embouchure because he said a lot of African-American guys, he called them black, the, the black gentlemen. <laughs> he said, uh, a lot of them, everything that I have in this book for them is upside down. He said, uh, old man, Charles Colon wouldn't let him do it. He said that that would be racist. And he said, how is that racist? He said, there, there are certain things that... Uh, the way black people play is just different and he he couldn't explain it you know god made him that way you know why why uh why call him a racist for pointing out something that he discovered by you know years of experimentation and research so uh the type five embouchure which chris labarber might know something about that guy's got a memory for the stuff that doc taught and uh you said you were talking about oh there was another thing i wanted to say that was really important uh, you know, I forgot to mention earlier, the straight type three, there's this, the straight type three, which they usually have a very downward uh, angle, almost like a clarinet player, their angle is, and Gazzo, Conrad Gazzo was a type three. Uh, I can't remember the third thing, doggone it. All right, so you're, the, the question you're asking was about diagnostic, yeah, something so, about diagnostics. Yeah, so so for people who, who are, you know, experiencing 
uh, you know, general issues with their playing. You know, uh, let's, so let's, so let's let's make, let's maybe make this a, a, a more specific scenario. Okay. Um, so uh, let's say that uh, you know your this and this is one of the probably the, the the most common questions. You know, you're having trouble with your upper register. Um, when when you're diagnosed, when you're kind of analyzing someone, or you know, even if you're just kind of talking talking to someone or through uh, through a process, um, do you ever start talking about uh, the 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 track uh, f- at the beginning, kind of like setting the stage, or is it just more of a well? Let me you know, tell me what you think your problem is, and 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 show me what you do, and then we figure it out from there. So is it kind of like planting the seed of of what we're looking to 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 try and find, or is it just don't think about it, just play, and then let me look at it and kind of figure out what what could be going on in, in terms of your playing. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, I've had, I don't know, four or five maybe six students who have come to me <clears throat> who were just like in trouble and in trouble forever. And uh, I have, uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't figure them out. You know, I couldn't figure it out. And uh, I sent one guy to Scott Holbert. I know I sent uh, some guys to uh, Doug. You know, I'm sending everybody to Doug now because Doug, he's got the eye. He really does. Uh, now I can see things in other people. I, I couldn't fix. I couldn't figure out on my my own that I was uh, what a uh, doc called that multiple embouchures because I was trying to play one instrument as a three B and the other one as a three A, uh, tuba as a three A and bass trumpet and trumpet as a three B. So that's multiple embouchures. But uh, I try to figure out what they can do and what they can do well, and uh, you know. Early on, you can tilt the horn uh, while while they're playing, and you can see if if it's like easier to ascend when they do do you know tilt this way, or if it's easier to ascend when they tilt this way, then they're uh, they're you need to direct them into being uh, it kind of adhering to all the the mannerisms uh, that are characteristic of the type that apparently they are. Now, uh, I think might have been Scott Holbert was saying that he wished that Doc had never used the term 3B for now, because that's what he typed me as a 3B for now. It means like, okay, what, what, what does that mean? I'm eventually going to become. And I used to think that meant that you, you would turn into a type four or something, but uh, everybody, everybody who plays an instrument is capable, or I should say a brass instrument is capable of playing successfully if they figure out what they need to do to propel them as the type of player they are and what they need to avoid that will hold them back is from what kind of player they are. <clears throat> Reinhardt used to say, if you don't possess, uh, like on trumpet, the, the fourth line G above the staff all the time, you know, as well as like all the way down to F sharp, if you don't have that all the time, then your chops are merely 
developing they're still developing so <laughs> my chops once again are developing <laughs> but uh yeah and these guys who uh they never had to work at it man they don't need to think about it you know guys who are you know 60 years old now and they're still playing great man i would not i would not encourage them to do anything different they just need to do what they're doing guys who have been struggling all their lives and have been getting worse chances are they're doing something contrary to their physical makeup to their physical type or what are you you're saying the physiology uh yeah you know we all have the and doc used to talk about the guys who would smile and you could see their gums you know when i smile you barely see my teeth so i have a long upper lip guys who have a short upper lip and i, I have a, a daughter who when she smiles you know you see her gums so she would be a type four probably is that's what doc used to say uh you know people have different thicknesses of lips uh you know your teeth are different you know finding the place where you have the four legs of the inner embouchure you know some people have to play over here some people play over here uh almost nobody plays dead center <clears throat> and then you know placing higher placing lower there's so many factors so uh you have to really uh, size up a lot of things and as as doug has proven to me you know you, it's probably better to over experiment than under experiment like if you think you find something right away and well like if you're a 60 year old guy and you've been playing great all your life yeah you found it and you may have stay there but if you never find it you know you might need to experiment a little more yeah so does that help yeah absolutely yeah it's kind of a, yeah if, if 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 it if it ain't broke don't fix it sure sort of thing and uh you know but but if it isn't working the way you want it to then be willing to you know to right right yeah. keep and an I, open mind and that you know and that is i think the key that uh we want to say that we have an open mind but um you know it's it's still we have in we have in our mind what we are willing to accept at any given point in time and, and if somebody suggests something that's outside of your range of your 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 comfort your comfort zone then you don't want to try it uh you know but the way I look at it is like, you know, if, if I'm not getting the results I want, that means that I probably don't know what I need to do. So, you know, if it's something I, I would have thought of already, that would have been doing it. So, you know, be willing to, to, to listen to the advice of, of someone that you trust and, uh, and at least give it a shot, you know, because, uh, it's not going to, it's not probably not going to hurt in the long run if that person is, competent and capable and that, that they have a, a an approach that works so you know bobby shu said something along those lines he said you actually are your best teacher because you're the one who permits things to enter or you're the one who repels things so you know <laughs> that d discernment yeah absolutely yeah yeah sometimes sometimes i mean on tuba I, I took some lessons with some people it's like i wanted to find a reinhardt tuba uh teacher and i couldn't uh i mean doug is the closest thing but uh yeah i mean you wouldn't believe some of the things these guys are saying and it's like man if i know if i did that i would be in bigger trouble so you know i i, I know enough uh <laughs> largely from uh, hard-earned experience uh to to filter out the you know the, the harmful stuff so yeah. most of the time yeah 
Yeah. Well, and so, I mean, that, that does uh, kind of get you back to, uh, I guess what I was trying to ask earlier, like from what I was trying to get to earlier, I guess was uh, that these tools obviously are super helpful uh, for diagnosing problems in your students. Uh, do you utilize them for yourself in terms of a self-diagnostic tool? Like when you're running into to trouble, I mean, obviously you, you've already you know, mentioned several times, Doug Elliott, uh, you know, a very, very talented trombonist and, and mouthpiece manufacturer and, uh, and teacher of uh, the, the Reinhardt system. Um, but do you, like if you're having trouble on, on a gig uh, or, or you're practicing and you're, you're having some specific trouble, are you, intentionally going back to some of these teachings and uh, absolutely i remember one day uh doc told me he said said if you break down brass playing he said it's, it's a few things he said and if you can cover all those things every day and keep them all alive he said play something high something low something loud something soft something tongue something slurred some sustained stuff some compression work uh some multiple tonguing so what was that nine things if you can cover all those things every day and uh and then he said you try to balance uh what your gig doesn't give you in those aspects you try to balance that in the practice room and you every day you try to get a balance of all those ingredients now compression you only need to do a little uh multiple tonguing you know i i keep it alive i rarely use it uh and then compression you know compression on bass trumpet used to be just so easy for me and it was never easy on trumpet. And uh, just recently, I've, I've actually been uh, getting, uh, having a little more success with compression on trumpet. So I think part of that was, uh, and I don't know that Doc misdiagnosed me as a 3B. I think at the time that was really working well for me. Uh, I just think that, you know, playing tuba jarred my chops into, you know, like I was, I thought I was pulling down to us, us end, but what I was doing was I was looking down, which is pushing up. So, yeah, uh, I, I don't always, <laughs> I, obviously, I don't always diagnose myself well, but uh, yeah, so basically what you were saying, uh, am I able to, to find the things that I need to do from time to time? Like there was a time I was playing a lot of lead trumpet and, uh, and I'm on this gig and it's just, you know, the first set wasn't going right. So I went into the back of the, it was a restaurant. I went way into the back uh, where hopefully nobody could hear me. And I did like a couple lines of Doc's track routine. Cause I just, I could tell, man, I was, I was, uh, uh, so the track routine, I guess it's to, uh, uh, I don't have the definition in front of me, but uh, you know, it works out the track of the inner embouchure so that you're, you know, you're going the right way to, to ascend and going the right way to descend or whatever. And uh, I could just tell, man, that, that it, it was off. And uh, so I, I went back and I did that and I came out and the next set felt great. So every once in a while, I'm able to, to understand right then what I need to do. Sometimes it, it doesn't uh, occur to me right away. Sometimes it takes a day or two or a year or two. <laughs> uh, all, all in its, its own time. But I, I, I think that that's the, the two components there that I see are that your studies have allowed you to uh, identify uh, when something is wrong um, and then to give you some very specific 
tools to apply to those diagnoses. So, and I think sometimes we, you know, the problem is it, it's one or, or both uh, that, that we, you know, it's like, I, I, I'm, I can't play today, you know, well, what specifically is going on? You know, so you, you're not able to diagnose that, that, Hey, my, my, I feels like my track is off. You know, if it, this, this is what's going on. Uh, and then maybe they can identify what's going on, but then they don't have the, the, the accurate tools to recalibrate themselves. So uh, I think that's one of the things that, that I've always, that's always fascinating to me about uh, the Reinhardt method is that it provides you both the, the clinical diagnosis, if you will, and then also the, the, the interventions to, to correct those, those problems. So yeah, I, a couple of times now you've called it the Reinhardt method. I, I more I think of it more as you know Reinhardt's approach. I don't I don't call it a method because like he told me he said you know uh, I don't give a lesson that I don't take a lesson. He said uh, every every student uh, is is his own system basically. Mm -hmm. So you you can't you can't have hard and fast for every single person or even like you know all three A's. You can't treat them all the same either because some of them you know might might do uh, things that are holding them back or. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that was making sense. No, uh, no, it, it makes absolute sense. And you know, that for me, one of the, and this is one of the reasons I, I certainly did want to have uh, someone who, who had studied with doc uh, to talk a little bit more in depth about some of these concepts um, that with any teacher, it's very easy to become beholden to uh, you know what you were taught uh, and your interpretation of what was taught, and then those become hard and fast rules. And I've seen it occur in in the trumpet world. I've seen it occur in the martial arts world. I've seen it occur in, in pretty much everything in life. Uh, that there are those who will take information, uh, they'll they'll create an idea or an approach to things. Um, and with the spirit of this is uh, developing a deeper understanding, and then I want to present this to you, and then hoping that you will then take it and, and interpret it and, and make it make it your own. But then there there are those people that want to hold on to that and become super dogmatic about it, and that any variation, uh, even the slightest variation from what they were told or what they think they were told, uh, then becomes you know, a point of contention. Blasphemy, right. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, with, with, the, with the teachings of Doc, uh, I mean, how long, did you, how long did you study with Doc directly? Okay, so I took several lessons between 78 and I moved to Philadelphia in the summer of 81. And uh, I ended up living like right on the next block. He was at 1720 Chestnut. I lived at 1813 Ranstead Street for about a year, and that was, I'm serious, not even a block away from him. Uh, it was between Chestnut and Market, uh, right off of 18th Street. So he was between 17th and 18th on Chestnut, so it was like one block over. But, uh, and and I, uh, I also, I had to get a day gig to uh, support myself. Uh, uh, next thing you know, I had a family, and uh, so I, I, I got, I, I used my GI Bill to go to school in Philadelphia uh, as a printing school. <laughs> it's no longer in business. I wonder why. But uh, I got a, a job working in a, 
like an ad shop doing paste up and mechanicals and they had a typesetting machine that wasn't being used all the time so the guy said said go over and learn how to use that machine i said i don't even know how to type he said if you can type one word a minute he said and and spell it right he said we can use it i said whoa can put the bar pretty low yeah so uh, i started doing that so uh next thing you know i'm learning how to do typesetting by typing stuff for doc he had all these hand you know i thought i had my book here it's it's in the shelf in the next room here uh he had all these handouts, which were multiple pages, and uh, I could take, you know, and his printing bills were phenomenal, man. He had to spend a lot of money on printing, but I would typeset his things. You know, I could take, you know, three pages and make it into one page, nice and legible, and he loved that, man. So next thing you know, he's giving me free lessons. He had me at two of his teacher, his three-day teacher clinics, you know, for free because I was doing all this stuff for him, and uh yeah, I mean, he he stopped by, you know, we, we kind of palled around some. We, we went to eat a couple times. You know, he was, uh, uh, I don't know if I answered your question. You had said something that triggered off another stream of thought. And, of course, I forgot it went that one, too. Yeah. Well, I, I what I was curious about was uh, in the period of time that, that, that you knew him, did you see his teachings, theories, concepts evolve during that time? uh i'm not sure i would say evolved i think he was better able to clarify things uh he he got all excited at this one point uh because he had this what he called the chop opus and he said you know he had uh uh diagnosed the 157 students or something like yeah he was he was kind of a, a promoter you know what i mean all right so yeah 150 it might have been 12 students who knows but uh and you know he found that the most uh common problem uh, was careless rapid mouth corner inhalations that was the number one biggest problem and then the second biggest problem was careless standard mouth corner inhalations so he might have just been trying to drive a, a point home that you know if, if you're always disturbing your embouchure every time you breathe and you know you're taking a lot of fast breaths and you like take it off put it back on you know you're hitting yourself in the mouth after a while uh, you got to be able to keep that sucker in place and you know just take a little quick like a sniff breath or you know, a little mouth corner breath. Uh, so I think, uh, I don't know that I saw his teaching change. You know, he did say uh, uh, he he used to, yeah, okay. He wouldn't give people as much stuff early on. He would wait till they came uh, several times before he would give them more stuff. But then he started giving them like, like he gave me the 10 test drills, uh, with my orientation analysis papers and, uh, you know, the pivot classification one, pivot classification two, uh, several things. And, uh, and then he, he would say D positively do not go past this page. And there was all this stuff. Well, you know what? I didn't go past that page. And uh, a couple lessons later, he said, I know you've been playing all that stuff. And I said, no, you said, don't go past it. He said, you're the first, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, I think he decided uh, to just, you know, give more stuff. Uh, and the encyclopedia, he he didn't even say, I need you to buy the encyclopedia. He kept talking about it. And I said, so where can I buy this encyclopedia? He says, well, I have some copies right here. So, uh, you know, I bought one from him. But, uh, yeah, he it, he was a funny dude, man. It, he would crack himself up. He'd be laughing, and I'd be sitting there. I wouldn't understand what he was laughing about. But, uh, yeah, he was a trip, man. Yeah. Have you heard any of the recordings? Mike cleaned up a bunch of those. 
Yeah, you know, I started to listen to some of them, and then I got sidetracked and just yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, that, that's I, a commitment to listen to yeah. all those. Yeah, I would, and because because uh, I I love all my all my listeners, my, all my audience. There are going to be links to all that in the show notes. So if, okay. if, if you would like to go and check those out, uh, there'll be links in the show notes for that. So you can. Now, you can Got to give Mike Barkley credit. He uh, he he th- does audio engineering or something, and uh, he took. Uh, I I sent him everything I had, uh, and he cleaned up the sound. Uh, there's there's this one that I have not posted yet, and it's uh, a Berkeley. Uh, he did a clinic at Berkeley College in uh, Boston, and uh, they were done on a cassette tape. And the only problem, you know, Mike cleaned it up. He gets rid of all the background noise and everything, but you can't hear the questions or the comments from the people. So I've been kind of struggling with, you know, is Mike going to, and he'll hear this now, is he going to be upset if I post them that were not the uh, versions that he cleaned up? Because I need to be able to hear the guys asking. Plus, I listen to everything in my earbuds. Yeah. So, yeah. I, Mike, the the gauntlet has been thrown, my friend. <laughs> I, I haven't known how to approach him on this one. He, I, I know he knows that I haven't put him up yet. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure he he understands completely. Uh, but I so with um, there there are tons of there there are a lot of resources, and there are obviously uh, you know a number of of very very well. Uh, established teachers in uh in in doc's uh system and and his approach to to teaching uh you know doug elliott one of the people that you mentioned uh chris LaBarbera, um uh you know yourself obviously uh and there there are like there's facebook groups uh there is is there still a, is there still a trumpet herald group uh, trumpet herald has uh the reinhardt forum uh, <clears throat> there's uh varying degrees of uh the reinhardt students who still post there uh i, I understand kenny smuckle is still teaching ala reinhardt scott holbert in pennsylvania uh Rene bernard if if he's still out there last i knew he was in connecticut or something he ought to be teaching reinhardt because he was a good reinhardt student uh you know roger homefield was a great reinhardt student down in i think he's in hollywood florida uh bill gibson he's uh He's actually the guy that convinced me I need to go see Reinhardt. There was a guy, uh, Mark Weigel, I was in the Army with, and, and he had gone to see Reinhardt before he came in the Army. So Mark, you know, he sounded great, good jazz player, uh, excellent jazz player, and and he was able to, pop, you know, pop off these, you know, Fs and Gs. And he said, you know, I couldn't always do that. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. He said, I went and saw Doc Reinhardt, and, and he helped me. So I was the first person I ever heard of Doc Reinhardt. So Bill Gibson, I had gone to school with him, you know, like we were in – little league together you know what i mean and uh you know bill <laughs> trombone player and you know i didn't take him seriously in high school and uh so i i heard him well it had to be 78 uh so i graduated high school in 73 so it was some years later and uh, i hear bill and he just sounds ridiculously good and i just said bill i said man you sound so good what happened you're like a left-handed compliment what happened and he said, oh, I've been studying with Doc Reinhardt. And uh, Dave, David Prine was also there. And David Prine says, yeah, man, if you want to get some chops, you got to go see Doc Reinhardt. So that was it. That sealed the deal. So I, I, they gave me the phone number. One of them gave it to me. And uh, next thing you knew, I was going up to uh, have a lesson with Doc Reinhardt. Yeah. 
changed my life. Well, uh, certainly if you, if you're interested in learning more about, uh, doc uh his teachings and you know if you want to find out about your classifications and things i'd certainly suggest you check out some of the the names that have been mentioned and uh you know do yourself a favor you know at least at this point you know if you like i said before if you're not getting the results you want yeah what's the worst thing can happen you know but uh so rich you 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 know you also have a, a lot of other stuff that you've got going on with your you know bopism uh music um and I saw some some interesting uh, books that you've you've done. Uh, your trumpet voodoo and your <laughs> your your take on the on Clark too. So, so it's it's kind of that innovative approach to uh, yeah taking taking things that we might take for granted and find boring and making them a little interesting. So uh, I, what what's what inspired your trumpet voodoo and your trombone voodoo uh, books? Okay, so first of all, it's baptism. There's a T in there. Oh, baptism. baptism. Yeah, it's like baptism, but with an O. I mean, with a, yeah, baptism, but with them. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> so Doug has having me practice this stuff and, uh, I've been practicing it and, uh, and, and then I just felt like, uh, well, it's kind of like what I was saying that doc told me, you know, the, the, what do we say? There were nine basic elements of brass playing. And, uh, so I, with the exception of, uh, compression, it's all in, uh, these uh, voodoo books, trumpet voodoo and uh, trombone voodoo. Uh, but yeah, uh, there's Reinhardt principles embedded in these things, but you don't have to study with Reinhardt to get the, the benefit of them, which is, you know, I, I think that's a clever trick. Uh, in fact, uh, that was Chris's contention why we needed to get uh, Reinhardt's. He called it, uh, it was called the Pivot System Manual of Studies. And Chris said, you know, Reinhardt didn't leave like a wealth of actual stuff for people to practice. So you need to, you need to make uh, this into a, a book. And I said, well, you know, you got copyright issues. And he said, well, you know, that was put out in like 1942 or something. It, didn't, it, didn't the copyright expire? Well, I, I did enough research to find out that uh, if you change enough things and do a fresh engraving, uh, you know, like things that were in uh four four we put them in six four and you know what what was a half note is now a dotted half note you know stuff like that so it, it actually plays the same it just looks different so uh so we put out the reinhardt routines and that the idea of that was so people could get the benefit of doing reinhardt's drills without actually having studied with him the only thing in that book that was troublesome to me was uh it starts with the uh uh, pivot stabilizer and if you don't get typed uh it's possible that you can do the pivot stabilizer incorrectly for your particular physical type so reinhardt used to tell me he said if you don't drop the jaw if you keep the weight on your lower lip and you don't drop the jaw then you're going to pivot correctly and he said the the, the uh, descending pivot i'm sorry a descending slur uh how did he say it? Uh, the key to all around correct brass playing is the correct execution of a descending slur. So a descending slur, you keep the weight on your lower lip and he didn't say pressure. You keep the weight on your lower lip and you don't drop your jaw. So if, if you can <laughs> internalize and do that, then the pivot stabilizer works for you and you don't need to know what type you are. 
So I tried to make that clear in the directions. Keep the weight on the lower lip. Don't drop your jaw to descend. So uh, yeah, and so that set of drills, uh, it's it's ridiculous, man. You know what? I don't advertise, and we get orders all the time for the Reinhardt routines. And then uh, I was practicing. You know, when when I put a book together, I practice out of it for a while before I publish it, so I can find hopefully all the mistakes, which you know I still find mistakes later. But uh, and then uh, focal point. Uh, I was teaching at Clemson and I had all these students, they didn't come to me for Reinhardt. They came to me because they were in marching band and they were required to take trumpet lessons. So I had, you know, 20 something students and uh, these guys were showing up and they wouldn't have practiced and uh, they didn't know how to practice. So I started just uh, giving them drills so that in the course of my lesson with them, uh, I basically taught them how to practice. And, uh, and that's focal point arose out of uh, practicing yeah, and, and I would do this stuff, uh, you know, eight, nine, 10 times a day with them. And then I'd go play gigs and I'd feel like a million bucks. So it was good for me. That's for sure. But uh, I was playing a lot of lead then too. Yeah. I, I got a DVD recently of a, a gig I was playing lead on. I'm thinking, good grief, man. I didn't know I could play that good, <laughs> but uh, I should do that again. Anyway. Uh, yeah. A lot of the, actually every single book with the exception of trumpet voodoo came about because I was writing it for students, uh, putting together a collection of things to help students without them knowing, you know, the underlying principles, you know, the Reinhardt stuff. And, uh, and then Trumpet Voodoo, I wrote for myself. I wanted stuff to practice. I wanted to have a selection of scale stuff to practice, a selection of melodic material to practice, and then a selection of technical stuff to practice so that I keep all these things alive every day. And, uh, yeah, I've been practicing out of it for a couple months, man. And I tell you what, uh, you know, for, for being uh, still a, a fledgling 3A, it's, it's not natural. Doug told me that the biggest tendency is to go back into my old playing groove. And I'm fighting not to go back into my old, you know, 3B playing groove. But, you know, the more I do these materials, it's like I, I have days where I feel like a million bucks, man. So I'm, I'm still waiting to feel like a million bucks on a gig. Uh, I've, I've gotten better. I've played several gigs and it's, it's humiliating, you know, to be, you know, I'm 66 now and I go out there and I sound, you know, kind of amateurish. It's kind of humiliating, but uh, yeah, it's, it's starting to happen, man. So, you know, Mike, Mike Saylor's, I was telling you about him earlier. He made the transition. He said within six months, man, he didn't have to think of it. Well, it's eight months for me and I'm still, uh, I'm still having to think about it. So, you know, maybe uh, being twice his age is taking me twice as long. Who knows? Yeah, well, yeah, it's uh, it's it, it, your your age is showing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I never. Bottom line is, I never set out to write a book. I never said oh, I'm going to sit down and write a book. Never happened, man. They all came about as doing something for situations, and then the next thing you know, it's like hmm, and then I do a couple more things, and hmm, and then I'll add a few more things. It's like all of a sudden, whoa, you know, I this this could this could actually be turned into a book. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what I did when I wrote my book. It was, it was just a, a lot of little stuff that I was doing and and other things. And it's like, oh, is, it, is that what I see right there that I can't really see? Yes, it's my book, Mindfulness Secrets. So, uh, okay, yeah. So that that that's exactly how that all came about. It's like you know all these little things and concepts, and it's like, oh, well, I could make this a book, <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. So, um, 
But yeah, I, I think it's it, because they're coming from practical perspectives, you know, and, and sometimes I think that when that's an organic way of creating something uh, and you, I think also you're, you're utilizing it in the, this isn't theoretical, you know, the, this is stuff that, that you've been uh, developing in in the practice room, uh, in the, the classroom, uh, and, and seeing the results that you get. So then, you know, it's already a tested and known commodity. So that, that's a great way of approaching stuff. And then I have the advantage of having spent all those years as a typesetter. Uh, I know how to make things look nice. You know, I know how to make, uh, publications look presentable. So for me to turn out a book is, is really not a big deal. Well, it takes a long time, but, uh, it's, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> In fact, uh, the first book that I had, I, I took it to Charles Colin, actually Alan Colin, and it was a duet book. And uh, I walked in there and uh, it, it was all done. I, you know, there were page, uh, camera ready pages. It was, it was already done. And he said, you know, no author composer has ever brought a finished product like this that he did himself. So usually we get this messy manuscript and we got to engrave it and go edits and all this stuff. And then they got to, do all the page layouts and it's, you know, it's a long process Said I've never, I've never had anybody do this. So that's, that's kind of cool. You know, the typesetting kind of, you know, it, all the, all the broken pieces of my life sort of fall together. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah well, that, that's, uh, there's something to be said for that, you know, and, sure, man. and I, you know, and that's a great lesson for, for most people is that, you know, uh, I've done a lot of different things in my life and uh, there was a point where I kind of felt like, when am I ever going to figure things out and just do one thing? But then it's, it, it was like, yeah, when you, I, I forget how old I was. It was probably my, in my late fifties where I, I kind of turned and looked back on my life and said, Oh, well, all of this stuff has just led me to the point I'm at right now. And all of right, those right. skills ha, are actually, you know, they're, they're all important. They're all integrated into my life. So yep. when you can, and that's, that's a joy of old age. I think, you know, you're, you're a few years older than me, but, uh, yeah, not that many. So you, know, you kind of reach a point where you can kind of see where everything did come into play. And, and, and that if you can embrace that, then you can start pulling from those lessons and you can apply them to your life. So, and, and I'm grateful that I was no child prodigy. I'm not even an adult prodigy, but, uh, <laughs> uh, Rich Madison used to talk about, uh, uh, child prodigies, how he didn't really trust, you know, this, you know, the latest 13 year old kid who's, you know, a badass. Cause he wants to wait till they're as old as everybody else struggling for all the same gigs, seeing if he, you know, if, if, if he makes it through, uh, adolescence and, you know, youth and early adulthood, you know, if he... <laughs> and you know what, I, I understand that today when he was talking about that, I was, and I I've known a couple of child prodigies and, you know, a couple of them have uh, turned into, you know, fine adult, you know, really mature players, but a lot of them, you know, and, and doc used to talk about talent is the enemy it, ta talent is not necessarily your friend. Talent can be your biggest enemy. So nothing beats hard work and persistence and dedication. Yeah. And I think that goes back to like uh, the, the very uh, beginning of our conversation about, you know, learning through those mistakes and having to, having to figure stuff out because, uh, you know, we, we all are going to run into a point where that becomes a necessary skill. And, uh, the faster you can learn that it's okay to fail 
uh, and that the only the only failure that, that you another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. True failure that you have is when you fail to learn a lesson from those mistakes. So, Very well put. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's great, great stuff. Right, well, I tell you what, my friend, we've got a few... Um, I, I could certainly talk about, uh, you know, Doc's teachings and your playing and, and uh, all that sort of stuff forever and ever and ever. But we have a few stock segments that we have to get through. Uh, okay. And um, the first one, because if I don't do this, especially this first one, I'm going to catch so much crap because this is sponsored by our mutual friend, Michael Barkley. Oh, good. Of Barkley Microphones. Uh, yeah. This is called Sound Off. Uh, this is about your approach to sound. And uh, the, let's kind of keep with this, this theme you know, as uh, we, we really wanted to, to kind of do the deep dive into the, uh, the teachings of, of Doc and, and then your uh, understandings of it and, and your adaptations of it. Um, what, are, what are some of the, the principal concepts of sound that you, uh, that you have in terms of uh, how to approach creating the, the kind of uh, trumpet sound that, that uh, is the best that you can get for your given situation? Huh. Uh, I guess if, if you listen to a lot of great players, somewhere subconsciously or consciously, you're going to emulate great players. Uh, the first trumpet player I really listened to was Herb Alpert, and I'm sure I'm not uh, unique in that. Uh, you know, heard Al Heard on the radio. Uh, the first jazz trumpet player I heard that just really grabbed me was Clifford Brown. So, uh, you know, Doc used to say, uh, and he, he could talk forever about what is a fine sound on a brass instrument. Uh, he said, the microphone here is different than the human ear. <clears throat> so I'm sure uh, Mike Barkley has incorporated that into, because uh, I, I know what, right, Arturo's using one of Mike's microphones now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I've got a Royer R20, R122 uh yeah i should hit mike see what he says it takes like six months to get one of his mics or is is he producing it faster now uh he's he's uh he's kind of backed up you know okay i'm, I'm waiting for my new one because he's supposed to be <laughs> is That's, that one of his yes yeah, one of his right oh here. wow yeah. sounds sounds beautiful he's supposed to be putting the special arturo filter in it <laughs> to get all the wrong notes out yeah exactly increase the velocity right exactly but uh but yeah, Reinhardt said, you know, for microphone use, uh, you want to don't point directly at a mic, point kind of off to the side just a little bit. He said the microphone hears the crispness, the, the brilliance, the brightness in the sound better than it hears the resonance. Uh, if you play acoustically in a big hall, yeah, it's great to have a resonant sound. Uh, if you're anywhere that a microphone is present, he used to say you need to have some, some brilliance, some edge on your sound or else the microphone's going to, you know, think of this uh, tubby. I think that was the word he used, a tubby sound. So I've always gone for a bright sound, and uh, even as a 3B, I always had a really bright sound. Even playing, you know, playing a 3C Bach mouthpiece for years, I still had a bright sound. So I'm also convinced today that no matter what equipment you play, 
you can have an old ambassador with a 7C mouthpiece. You play that for 20 years, you're going to sound the way you're going to sound on anything. You know, you, um, you know, Clark's gone, but you hand Clark Terry any horn, he's going to sound like Clark Terry. You know what I mean? So I think uh, a lot of people get caught up in the minutia of equipment, and I think it's a waste of time and a waste of money. I think dedication in the practice room and uh, focus and concentration on the bandstand and hearing a lot of recordings of yourself. I think that's so important to developing a sound. I think I might have answered this question. I think I might be the first one I answered, or did I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. no, I, it's absolutely, I absolutely love that. Uh, and actually, I, I, I would do want to kind of, side, uh, kind of go down a, a slight little uh, rabbit hole on this. Um, there are, uh, it, 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 as I remember, uh, Doc did mention that there are some some typical sound quality issues uh, that are related to to some of the types, um, like uh, as my in you know, like my playing it, I've always had that kind of uh, a bright, brilliant kind of sound, uh, and it, it always kind of lent itself to that. Uh, so what, what did, am I remembering correctly? You are, that, you are. And, and what, what are those, <clears throat> those more typical, uh, results based on, on uh, knowing that players can shade them? Uh, but you know, what, what are the, the typical characteristics of those types? Okay. So generally speaking, a, uh, a three B will have a, a bigger, wider, enormous quantity of sound is the way doc used to say it. If you're standing next to a three B in a trumpet section you you hear him man you hear that guy because it's a big sound maynard good grief man maynard's sound filled it was crazy man you know i used to warm up in the like the next room from him or he would come backstage and, and he'd be playing while the band's playing the first tune and he had the most enormous sound it was just gigantic okay uh and as far as projection uh, a 3b does project a 3A, if you're standing next to him in the section, you'll think this guy is kind of a wuss, man. You're like, you, you don't hear him off to the side. That's because his sound is projecting. Out front, man, you can hear a 3A just magnificent. There's You, you don't struggle to hear him. And then uh, a 4 uh, tends to have uh, a more, uh, what's the word that he used to use? Like a strident, a bright sound. Uh, you don't see a lot of uh, type fours in orchestras. They, they do exist. It's because they're playing like the, the most jumbo silky 24 or like Bach one uh, <laughs> drilled out to like a you know, whatever the biggest bore you can have is because uh, they have to kind of hide. But yeah, a, uh, a type four can have a shrill sound if they're not careful. But it's also, you know, it, it's great for cutting through in the high register. Uh, Fours, uh, and I, I remember Doc talking about this, and Chris LaBarbera has reiterated this many times. Fours can have more problems with tonguing than uh, the other types. You know, three A's can, three A's, seem, it seems to be like the best type. Uh, if, if you're lucky enough to be a three A, I think you, you suffer the least uh, difficulties. And uh, yeah, I was going somewhere with that. And once again, I derailed myself. But that's good because you probably have another question. Well, well no, be I mean because like when it, that's what what I loved about the the stuff with Doc 
uh, was like when I thought about all the problems that I had and I started reading, you know, as a four, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yep, that's me. That's me. That's oh, me. by the way, I know the other thing I was going to say earlier. Uh, Louis Dowdswell, is that how you say his name? Louis Dowdswell? Uh, there was a thing he said. He, I studied with Chris LaBarbera like a month ago or something. And this guy, good grief, man. He, I, I had never heard a more succinct uh, encapsulation of so much of Reinhardt's teaching as that guy. It's like he had either absorbed it quick or he'd been reading the encyclopedia encyclopedia for years. He only said one thing that I found uh, contrary to what Doc had told me, which was he said type fours should never buzz. And what Doc told me was type fours ought to buzz their lips. They should just not buzz and walk into the mouthpiece. Because when a type four buzzes, the airstream still goes down. But when he puts the mouthpiece up to his face while he's buzzing, it has to switch directions and that'll just cause distortion. So, and when Doc talked about buzzing, he was talking about buzzing your lips, not pinning it down with the mouthpiece. He's talking about buzzing your lips. So all these guys who say free buzzing. No, I don't say free buzzing. I, I, that annoys me, man. Like buzzing, you know, that's buzzing. You know, this other free uh, or, or mouthpiece buzzing. Yeah. You know, I know Clark Terry did that and Clark Terry was great and everything. But uh, Reinhardt told me, he said, you, you get so much more benefit from just buzzing your lips. As soon as you put the, uh, the metal against your lips and pin your lips against your teeth, he says, you can get away with all kinds of stuff. Uh, your, your muscles have to do everything when it's just your lips. So, yeah, that, there, that was my soapbox for this hour. Okay. All right, there you go. Oh. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our uh, free passing, free passing, free passing. Oh, shut up, man, free bird. Our next segment is uh, called Geared Up. It's brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces, Venture, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code TrumpetGurus21, get 10% off your order. And this is about gear. Obviously, you know, if you're a trumpet player, you got to talk about gear. Uh, but, you know, it, it's not so much like, you know, hey, man, you know, you show me your mouthpiece, I'll show you mine, sort of talk about gear, but you know, more about the concepts about uh, the relationship between gear and the player and you know, keeping in with, with this theme of, of, uh, of Reinhardt's teachings. Um, you know, are, are there specific kinds of, of gear that, uh, that tend to work best based on type or uh, do you have suggestions for, for that or is it just the, the free for all? All right, so... Uh... No matter what kind of mouthpiece somebody walks, if you walked into me with a Venture mouthpiece, is that what it is, Venture? That's correct. Yeah, if you walked in and you showed me your mouthpiece, I would pick it up and look at it and I'd say, that's an excellent mouthpiece. Because you know what? Every mouthpiece is excellent. It just, does it suit your purposes? Uh, you know, if, if you're going <laughs> to, if you're going to try to play uh, uh, fourth trumpet in a big band, uh, do you need like the tiniest, shallowest mouthpiece? Well, some guys can do it, but it may not be the one that makes your job the easiest. Uh, if, if you play a mouthpiece, I don't, I don't know, man. I, I really don't have anything to say about mouthpieces. Uh, you know, every, every mouthpiece is good. You know, it has its advantages. It, it, I think every single mouthpiece has a certain set of advantages and a certain set of disadvantages. And if you can find the one that's like the happiest medium for what you want to do, then it's an excellent mouthpiece. I think they're all excellent. The mouthpiece doesn't do a damn thing, man. It's us that does it. You know, we put our lips up to it and then we play it. 
The mouth, if you know, I don't have one right. Yeah, here we go. Here's my bass drum at mouthpiece. Look at that mouthpiece. How does that sound? How's the high register on this mouthpiece? Mouthpiece doesn't do anything, man. You know, it's 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 the embouchure. It's your your physical makeup. You know, the player learns how to play a mouthpiece. Yeah. So the adventure mouthpieces, I'm sure those are outstanding mouthpieces. I love them. Every single one of them, man. I think they're all fantastic. <laughs> oh, great. Well, I guess it may, it, so maybe here's here's maybe here's a, a a better question to ask you. Yeah, yeah, uh, got to be a better one. That that's that's more specific, as, uh, particularly to your experiences uh, as as someone who doubles, triples, uh, you know, home runs, whatever. Uh, as someone who, who's who's switching between gear uh, a lot, um, you know, what what are you what are you looking at in terms of uh, being able to, to have a consistent feel between instruments? Uh, and, you know, how, how does that affect your, your playing, you know, overall? Like, you, know, you talked about how playing tuba kind of adjusted, you know, made your, your, uh, your track change a little bit. Uh, I mean, how, how do you deal with having to work with different, different equipment? And is there ways to make it easier to, to do that? Yeah, it kind of comes back to the more time I spend on each of them, the more instantly my face recognizes which mouthpiece I've put up to my face. So if if I, I mean, I, I practice all three instruments every day, the trombone mouthpiece, the tuba mouthpiece, the trumpet mouthpiece. I don't practice flugelhorn. Uh, I only play it on gigs. I know that's a sacrilege for some people to hear. And you know what? I'll go on another soapbox thing. Uh, I've seen so many guys in big bands and 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 a solo comes up on their part and they immediately dive for their flugelhorn it's like don't do that play a trumpet solo man unless it says flugelhorn play a trumpet solo you know clifford brown never played a damn flugelhorn you know what i mean i mean to me that's like the greatest trumpet sound uh, in jazz ever well almost the great uh, po possibly well let's say, just say one of the top 10 right yeah maybe my top one but one of the top 10 greatest trumpet sounds you know uh Trumpet is a great sound. So, you know, why the people think, oh, it's jazz and I get around better on my flugelhorn. No, man, pick, pick up your trumpet and be heard. You know, flugelhorn gets buried in a big band too, unless you got the microphone right there. You know, Cl now Clark Terry, uh, he's a, an exception to pretty much all the rules. When Clark played flugelhorn, you know, it's like when, uh, <laughs> when Charles Schwab talks, people listen or whatever. You know, when Clark Terry plays whatever he played, man, it was phenomenal. But for most guys, I, I consider flugelhorn to be the great equalizer. It, it can make a good player sound average, and it can make an average player sound better than, you know, well, well, a below average player sound average. Let's put it that way. But, yeah. Uh, okay, so Doc used to say a type four, they'll often play a bigger mouthpiece so they don't have such a bright uh, penetrating sound. Uh, he also said play the smallest mouthpiece you can get away with. Uh, I, uh, on trumpet, uh, I have, I've, I've changed since I came back to trumpet in, uh, 90, what year was it? 96. I came back to trumpet. Uh, I think I've only played three mouthpieces. I was playing, uh, my teacher told me to play a Bach one C or something at, uh, uh, university of South Florida. And then I went to Manhattan School of Music, and uh, Lou Soloff told me I needed to play something smaller. 
and a buddy of mine said, get a uh, Bob Reeves 43C3, which I did. And I played that for years. And then uh, I was playing West Side Story. I played it for three weeks, eight shows a week, playing the first part. And the last day, a buddy of mine, Bill Dunn, who's a great trumpet player in the D.C. area, uh, he came through town and he sat in the pit with me. And uh, and and by the end of that show, that 43C3 mouthpiece felt enormous. Well, Bill was a big three, Bach 3C guy. So he had like, I don't know, 25 or 30 of them in his case, right? So uh, we went back to my house and I'm playing all these Bach 3Cs and it felt really good. Uh, Mark Curry uh, sent me his equivalent of the Bach 3C and I've been playing that since probably 2007. So I'm not into mouthpiece changes. I, I firmly believe that you find a mouthpiece that makes sense, the smallest one you can get away with, and you just stay on it and play it. You're going to sound the way you sound. You're going to, you know, I've, I've, I've played plenty of high G's on uh, uh, a 3C and I've never been a double C player because I'm not the best Reinhardt student. I think I've told you that a few times now. Uh, <laughs> and I have all the materials here. You know, you're trying to work on being a jazz musician. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, trying to keep, it's like the guy in the, the circus who spins the plates, you know what I mean? Trying to keep all these plates spinning or, you know, juggling all these things in the air. Uh, man, developing range is for me, and uh, you know, uh, the three B doc used to call that the blood and guts type, because anything you you attain on as a three B, you really had to work your ass off for to get to. So to develop range as a three B, I really I worked really hard to do that. So uh, so now as a three A, uh, well I'll let you know, man. It's only been eight months. All right. Well, well, we'll we'll have a check in with you uh, at at month twelve. How's that? Okay. But we'll see. We'll see how you are. You, yeah, it should be result. interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm hoping to have a breakthrough any day and have my double C's like Mike Sailors. Ah, well, yeah. save a few and send them to me. <laughs> yeah. One final segment to get through, and uh, this is uh, brought to us by our friends at Robinson's Remedies. Robinson's Remedy Rapid Relief for your sore and tired chops. This is called the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round. It's a series of questions that uh, have absolutely no connection to anything. They just kind of bounce around, uh, you know, kind of like your, kind of like your chops at the end of a, a six-hour big band hit. And uh, so, if you're ready, Rich, we're going to get going. Give me your quickest answer to the following questions i just got to say something about robinson man mr robinson he he uh was the guy who who had the uh jazz chair after i got off of maynard i think yeah he might have been the, the yeah and uh yeah I've, I've gotten to know him i love the guy man he's a good guy go ahead ken kenny's a good dude he's a good dude he is man he's a great dude yeah yeah uh, all right so here we go first question for you rich who's the biggest influence in your life that is not a trumpet player Frank Zappa uh, or, or Charlie Parker. Okay. All right. <clears throat> All right. What's your favorite book? <laughs> Other than Trumpet Vision. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. Uh, I better not say that. We'll have to talk about this later, okay? Oh, we'll talk about that one later. Okay. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Worst movie I've ever seen? <clears throat> I 
it's so funny because my wife and I will watch a movie and five minutes before the end, we'll look at each other and say, wait, I think we've seen this before. So we get to enjoy a movie again for the first time. Uh, the worst movie I've ever seen? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> uh, Next <I'm>, question. <laughs> yeah, I'm stumping you. I'm stumping you. Okay. Uh, if you were a trumpet player uh, or brass player, what would you want to be? If I was not a trumpet player or a brass player? <clears throat> well, when I got out of high school, I wanted to be a recording engineer. So... But I also wanted to live on a mountain and write music. So I'd, I'd want to be a composer or a recording engineer or both. All right. Uh, what's your favorite drink? Aquafina. All right. Uh, you're going to have a dinner party. And at this dinner party, uh, you can invite any three people in the world. Any three living people could come uh, to be at this party. Who would you want to have there? My wife. Do I include my wife? Hey, that's a given. <laughs> that's a given? Okay, so four people. And friends, friends and family. <laughs> so they're, my they're wife and I are inviting three people over? Yeah. Uh, man, you're, you're stumping me all over the place. Three people who are alive. I mean, if, if they were people who were no longer with us, but they would still be able to make it over to dinner? Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. We gotta get. Oh, okay. We gotta get the, people the, who are alive. You know, I'm I'm not really much of a hero worshiper, so I can't really. You know, I mean, well, I guess Jesus Christ is still alive. Uh, yeah, we're gonna have to skip that one too. All right. Well, let's go. Let's go to the second part of the question, which is any three people from history. Any three people that are known history. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Uh, Definitely Jesus. Uh, well, Charlie Parker. <laughs> we wouldn't have anything to drink for him. We wouldn't have any drugs for him. But uh, maybe he could stay sober and have dinner with us. There you go. Uh, three people. And uh, Mark Twain. Okay. Samuel Clemens. That sounds good. All right. Lacquer, plated, or raw? Oh. Uh, I can't play raw because it makes my hands turn green. All right. I've had plenty. Uh, what's your favorite quote? My favorite quote is actually a Mark Twain quote, which I recently saw attributed to Denzel Washington, but it was actually Mark Twain who said, uh, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read the newspaper, you're misinformed. All right. Uh, what is your greatest fear? My greatest fear? Uh, what's my greatest fear? <laughs> I, joke, I joke about uh, having uh, road ban PTSD because I have these dreams about uh, it's like a variation of things. I'm going to miss the bus that um, um I, I left the uh the gig to go find something to eat and then i'm trying to get back to the gig and i can't find the gig or I'm, I'm trying to get back to the stage and i hear the band has already started so i think those must be some like deep-seated uh fears generated from spending you know a lot of time on the on road bands 
so i don't know as far as biggest fear of uh like today uh i don't know man i'm I'm not going to say that i'm without fear i just can't think of any uh anything that's like serious enough to to traumatize me right now all right all right next question uh you could be granted one superpower what would it be (laughs) uh i could be granted one. man where do you get these questions if i could grant uh well, so I guess I hark back to uh, Superman, right? In my youth, George Reeve. Yeah. Oh, superpower. Uh, well, you know, it would be nice. Like, I've had two shoulder surgeries now, and my shoulder still is still isn't right. I'd just like to be able to hold the trumpet for hours at a time and never get tired. How's that? I, and Super shoulder endurance, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that super shoulder man, that would be your name. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you find to be the most overrated? Uh, well, let's face it. We all, it's exciting when we hear a guy who has range use it well. Uh, but range as a means to its it, an end can be one of the most annoying. But you know what? The first time I heard Maynard, no, it wasn't the first time. Uh, might have been the third time I heard him. I was in Denton, Texas, and I heard the band, and I left there thinking, I don't ever want to hear another high note. You know, because at the time I was into Kenny Dorham and, you know, Clifford Brown and Tom Harrell and, you know, like tasteful jazz musicians. And it was like, I don't ever want to hear another high note. So, yeah, maybe just the sheer range for the sake of you know, range. If if you're really like Carl Saunders, you ever listen to Carl Saunders? Oh yeah. Man, when that guy plays and he goes up there, it's meaningful. But a lot of guys, it's just kind of like obligatory. Like <laughs> who is the guy at ITG? Uh, you know him. Uh, he's in the Minozel. Why can't I, he plays that trumpet that looks like he squeezed it too hard? Tom Ganch. Tom there Scott. you go. Yeah. So he was doing a thing, and 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 he 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 pops off a double C and he goes like, you know, checked off that one. It's, it's like, you know, obligatory, you know, and and, it, and when he did it, it, it wasn't annoying, but you know, some guys, they do it. It's like, they think they have to, and it's, you know, I don't think so, man. You don't have to do that. And uh, Roger Ingram, man, he, he can do it all night. Right. And I heard him get up and, and do a feature and he didn't, I don't think he went above a high C and it was brilliant, you know? So yeah, high, I think just sheer upper register for the sake of, uh, what's the word i want to use <laughs> Two there's a word that i'm actually avoiding using yeah. Yeah. yeah okay all right so uh what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most underrated the most underrated i think is uh what aspect of trumpet is the most under well trumpet has always been known as like the strongest melody instrument i think you know if you want the melody heard you give it to a trumpet so uh maybe as is in a supportive role rather than in a lead role maybe that's uh, the most underappreciated is the you know trumpet like i know I, i wrote a thing where i have the trombones above the trumpet and it's cool man and I think the trombones sound really good because the trumpets are written under the trombone. 
So I, I think that's what I'm trying to say. Cool. All right. You can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Find a different way to make a living. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, hey. if, if you've got the bug, man, there's nothing else you can do. Because I like all those years I was doing typesetting, I was not happy doing that. Although today I'm really grateful that I did that. Yeah. But you know, if 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 you've got it, man, and you don't pursue it, you're gonna regret it. So I guess that would be the answer. Okay, great. Uh while you're back there, you're gonna give your younger self one piece of advice about life. Don't take yourself too damn seriously. Mm, okay. Final question for you, Rich. What do you want your legacy to be? Oh, well, I'll be gone. So probably won't be up to me. So you know what? It's okay. Whatever anybody wants to say or write is fine. <laughs> All right. That's certainly one way to think about it. <laughs> well, I mean, who has, if, if you think about, if you, if you spend your life trying to figure out what your legacy is going to be, come on, man, there's more important things to do. You know, it's it's not even in my lifetime anyway. So why, what, what, you know, why bother, man? Come on, think wow. about it. Good enough. Yeah. All right. Well, Rich, I certainly appreciate you taking time uh, to hang with me today and uh, sharing your insights. And uh, I know you've got some great stuff going on with uh, you know all of your writing and uh, all your other projects. So, uh, folks, if you want to know more about Rich. Uh, and uh, purchase some of his uh, great books. You can find the notes. Uh, you can find the links in the show notes. So please reach out to him and, and uh, pick up your your swag from him. And uh, <laughs> uh, if you want to know more about the, uh, the teachings of uh, Doc Reinhardt, uh, certainly can uh, can find uh, the, all the resources that we have uh, listed as well. And you know, dive into that deeper. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy the teachings, and uh, I think that uh, for anybody, any serious student, student of the trumpet, just uh, even if you if you're not going to follow the advice, at least just educate yourself on on what uh, the teachings are all about. I think that's that's a key thing right there. So, Rich, thank you, my friend, and I thank you for joining us for this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang. Make sure you like and subscribe, share this with a friend. And, uh, you know, if you have suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to let me know. And as always, folks, peace and slide grease. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Um.